Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show. Shut up. Yes, it's legal now. We can say it because the president said it in parliament. But then he withdrew it. Yeah, caused uh, some ructions today in Parliament. We'll talk to Gay Davis about that. That's the sort of tabloid stuff. There's more serious stuff going on in Parliament as well, uh, to, of which we'll talk to Jacko Marie later. Jacko is the Deputy Chairman of Standard Bank. He's the Chair of Liberty. He's also an investment envoy working on your behalf um, to get money flowing into South Africa, getting foreign direct investment in. We'll talk to him about uh, what is uh, what is on his mind in terms of uh, the big, lofty $100 billion goal that has been set by the President also this evening, the, the fact that the Listeria uh, outbreak seemed to have abated very significantly. Um, will you start seeing bacon in Woolies once again? They've had a real supply crisis um, through this Listeria shock. Um, Andy Rice with Heroes and Zeros. We'll talk about whether or not this is the time, the golden opportunity to be investing in Zimbabwe or whether you should sit tight. If you are investing new money in Zimbabwe, I'd love to hear from you tonight. On 11 and then the big issue being discussed in Parliament today, the big political issue, the big social issue, the big economic issue of our times is land reform. We're going to be talking to Professor Ruth Hall, who is a researcher at PLAS, otherwise known as the Institute for Poverty, Land and Agrarian Studies at the University of the Western Cape. She'll join us in studio later on to talk about the massively complex issues around land reform and how it needs to be achieved to give everybody a stake in the future. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. So your fast fact question. What did Chris Messina invent? I resent him on a daily basis for this invention. Chris Messina invented something in 2007 and it changed the world. Ugh. In a bad way, or maybe a good way. Maybe you like this, his particular invention. Chris Messina invented something in 2007. What was it? 31702 31567. 702 The Money Show. Bruce is on Twitter at Bruce Business. Hashtag money show. The annual tourism in Darba underway in Durban at the moment. A great opportunity for South Africa to showcase its tourism potential to the world, but also a great draw card for everyone from tour operators to business owners to policymakers to rub shoulders. And it's good to see Zimbabwe making a strong showing at this year's uh, Durban in Darba. Uh, the downturn in tourism in Zimbabwe over the past 20 years has been appalling for our whole region. It really has. Uh, talking incidentally later on about investing in Zimbabwe. Also interesting to today to see President Cyril Ramaphosa briefly drop his guard in Parliament. Serious issues under discussion as part of the parliamentary process and there's always consistent barracking and heckling and it must get very, very tedious. And eventually Cyril Ramaphosa turned to uh, the DA Chief Whip John Steenhuis and told him to shut up. 
He did it once, he did it twice, he did it thrice. What a, uh, an animated day, probably the first animated day in months, Gay Davis, the EWN parliamentary correspondent. It was an interesting sideshow on an otherwise very serious day. It was, and it's the first time I've seen the president lose his cool like that. Uh, he was speaking about the national minimum wage. He was talking about 6.6 million people in the country who earn less than 20 rand an hour. And of 16 million working people, there's some taking home 750 rand, 1,500 rand a month. Those, the president says, are truly poverty wages. And this constant barracking and interjecting and heckling coming from the DA benches. Uh, and he stripped his wick and he turned to John Steenhazen, the DA's chief whip, and said, shut up. And the House cha- chairperson, Cedric Froelich, of course, stepped in, Steenhazen objecting. Unparliamentary to say shut up to a member, you can't do that. And he withdrew. Uh, and then there were further objections about whether he'd ah. withdrawn. He said, I, I, I withdraw, but I want you to listen. I want you to listen. This is serious stuff I'm talking about. Poor people here. To the boys in blue. So it would be be nice to focus on the issues and really get resolution to the crises that South Africa faces. One of those crises, something we're going to tackle uh, with Professor Ruth Hall from PLAS later on, is about uh, about land reform and policy certainty and the the, the complexity of land reform. And so Ramaphosa does seem to have his finger on that button at the moment. Well, he has no choice but to have his finger on that button or at least hovering over it. Um, I think that one of the big takeaways today as well, Bruce, was the announcement by Ramaphosa of this review that he's launching into the State Security Agency and Police Crime Intelligence. He's going to be announcing a review panel of security and intelligence experts, he says, within a matter of days, and they are going to get stuck into looking at the issues and the problems in the State Security Agency and in crime intelligence. You know that he recently shuffled Arthur Fraser, the Director General from the SSA, to head up correctional services, and he said today in the House when he was asked why Tomoyani, the SAR Commissioner, is facing an inquiry, and yet Arthur Fraser gets... Uh, gets reposted. Um, He alluded to sensitivities within the State Security Agency, but he also uh, talked about the fact that this would allow the review panel to get stuck in and to look at what seems to me to be likely to be a major overhaul. They're going to be looking at the mandate, they're going to be looking at structures, and they're also going to be looking at that parallel spy network that Arthur Fraser is alleged to have set up. The, uh, the Principal Agent Network, or PAN, uh, which features in Jacques Poe's book, The President's Keepers, and was also, I think, the subject of an investigation that the Inspector General Intelligence mm. was trying to do, and, of course, that led to a standoff with Fraser, which led to his removal. But, so but, 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 of, but also, yeah, I mean, the, the politics of politics is, is absolutely fascinating. Today, though, in Parliament, Sir Roman Paul's covering this huge range of issues, uh, amongst them the policy certainty issues that are required to draw investors to South Africa, the land issue, which many contend is a hindrance to investment. But there was a lot of talk around investment today and drawing that $100 billion worth of investment to South Africa over the next five years. Right. He essentially explaining what the message is that these 
special envoys that he's appointed to try and attract this $100 billion over the next five years, what they'll be telling potential investors. Uh, so things like, you know, the government and the economy uh, are well managed, that uh, South African bonds are amongst the best performers in emerging markets in 2018, uh, that the government is working to root out corruption and to... Uh, restore the integrity that we've lost at institutions and I think that the review of the State Security Agency and Crime Intelligence actually very much underscores that uh, and that they're fixing SOEs, getting them back on track and again rooting out corruption. Um, so I, I think that this is a, a message that's incredibly positive. Of course, it's against the backdrop of the decline in foreign direct investment to this country since 2008, which I've seen figures where it's from 27% as value of GDP to 19%. And as you know, Bruce, the country just can't afford that. We need foreign direct investment. The economy can't work without it. So this is a very critical task for Ramaphosa to pull off and especially for the special envoys. Okay, Davis, thank you. We'll speak to one of those special envoys in about 25 minutes' time. Uh, Jacka Marie joins us uh, to talk about the, those issues that were raised in Parliament today. Gay Davis, parliamentary correspondent for EWN. Thank you. 702, The Money Show. Call Bruce on 011-883-0702. Well, British Airways today announcing a new three-times-a-week service between Heathrow and Durban's King Sharker International Airport. The flight starting in October. The airline already operates multiple daily flights from Oliver, from Oatambo and also daily flights from Cape Town International too. SAA has been cutting back on its uh, links to London. It flies directly to the UK but only from Oatambo. Sue Petrie is the commercial manager for Southern Africa at British Airways. Sue, what's your research telling you about demand to Durban that gives you the confidence to launch three flights from September? Oh, good evening, Bruce, and thank you for having me on your show. Um, Bruce, basically, we, you know, Natal is a fantastic tourist destination, and there's so many reasons for tourists to come in and visit Natal, not only from the warm Indian Ocean um, waters, uh, further inland as well into the uh, Midlands meander. They have the Drakensberg. They've got uh, a number of... Uh, that's, lovely, that's, all, um, that's, that's what the tourist, the, the tourist brochure tells us, all of that lovely yeah. stuff that we know. But what is it about your research that tells you that British people are willing to fill your planes three times a week to go to Durban um, as opposed to flying into Joburg or, or, or Cape Town? Why Durban? Well, um, a tradition, we used to fly into Durban um, up until the mid-1990s. But it wasn't a direct flight. It was via Johannesburg. Um, we then uh, we obviously had a very successful, we have a successful relationship with our franchise partner, British Airways, operated by Comair, who have actually taken passengers from Johannesburg and, and Cape Town onto des- further destinations that we don't fly to. Um, we've had the public and uh, people all asking us in the KwaZulu Natal for, for years now about when we're going to bring back a, a direct service. And we're really excited to announce today that uh, it'll be back in October. Is it going to be purely seasonal, in other words, just for the summer traffic, or is it going to be a year-round routing for you? Uh, Bruce, this will be a year-round routing for us. And how is that? I mean, you must have done your calculations as to the impact it's going to have on flights into Oratambo. I think you operate how many daily flights from Oratambo to Heathrow? I mean, there's something like three frequencies, I think, and certainly at least one out of Cape Town. Yeah. Well, currently we have a double daily from Johannesburg to Heathrow Terminal 5. And actually, over the last um, 18 months, we've increased our footprint into southern Africa. 
we've increased flights to Cape Town um, over the peak summer period. Now we have double dailies uh, to Heathrow and we have additional three flights a week from Cape Town into Gatwick. Uh, from Mauritius, we've increased flights over the peak summer period from three to five a week. And recently in March, we just launched our new uh, service to the Seychelles. Um, twice weekly service, which will also be year out. I mean, and that, that's a big commitment to this to this region. Um, and clearly, the tourism numbers are there to back it up in terms of the you, your ability to fill those flights. What sort of um, what sort of capacities are you running at the moment on those flights? Uh, well, I, I can't give you a away. The flights are only open for booking tomorrow. No, uh, no, no. But I mean, on the existing on the existing flights, you yeah, must be, be be at least ninety percent capacity on all of these flights. Yeah. Well. Bruce, that, that we don't discuss as it's uh, commercially oh. confidential. The, the interesting bits, the interesting bits. Yeah. But Sue, I mean, clear, clearly the demand is there. Are you concerned at all that you're going to cannibalise Cape Town and Joburg or is there enough demand to justify the Durban leg as an extra one? No, no I think we certainly, we've done our homework and we certainly do feel that there, there is enough demand to justify it, not only for incoming tourists, but also outgoing from KwaZulu-Natal. So not only for leisure travellers, but I think, you know, it's a great opportunity for business, you know, manufacturing companies, export companies, agricultural companies, uh, for them be, to be able to um, expand their, their business, not only in the UK, but also in Europe and in North, uh, North America. Um, and so we're at the, we'll be the only uh, direct flight to Europe from Durban. It's a fascinating story. Sue Petri, thank you very much. Commercial manager for Southern Africa at British Airways. Um, adding those flights, I mean, if you look at a double daily to our tambo, um, that, that's 14 flights a week. And then in the peak tourist season, another 14 flights a week to Cape Town. Add in three more from uh, Cape Town to Gatwick. And then you add three Durban frequencies a week. And suddenly you've got British Airways flying directly into South Africa over the peak holiday season 34 times, 34 flights. Um, it's extraordinary. Um, and SAA flies a fraction of that out of OR Tambo uh, to Heathrow. They gave up one of their landing slots at Heathrow Airport. They gave up the Cape Town um, London route as well, did SAA. And you've got to look at the job that Fuani Jahana and Bob Head, who was our shapeshifter last week, have got and the challenges they must have on their plates to try and compete with this kind of frequency with British Airways, which is getting a, a very strong pricing position because it just doesn't have the competition on the direct routes to London that it once had. SAA gave up that direct competition. We need a national carrier? That's what we keep getting told. We keep needing to bail out SAA, bail out SAA. And here is another airline, an international airline that can fly anywhere it chooses in the world. It sees demand in South Africa and it does it. And I'm assuming, because they wouldn't keep adding, throwing good money after bad if they weren't making a profit on it. They work differently to us. But they clearly see the opportunity that we are unable to exploit. It's tragic. The Money Show. The Markets. Well, markets were disappointing today. They really were. It was a negative day on the JSE. Lots of concerns in the global economy. Um, Wayne McCurry, market commentator from Ashburton Investments, on the line to us this evening. Uh, Wayne, the market seems to be very focused on what Donald Trump is or is not going to yeah. say around Iran and speculation that he could withdraw from the nuclear deal with Iran, which could cause chaos. Well, look, we just don't know at the moment. There's an official announcement coming up in a couple of hours time in america but the rumors are that he is going to pull out and to be totally honest i think that the rumors are correct i think he is going to pull out and we saw oil fall three percent and then bounce back up again and as part of these rumors there's stories now that he'll 
cancel this deal, but there'll be a little bit of a compromise. And of course, uh, you don't know what Russia is going to do and what China is going to do because America is not the only partner in this deal. Yeah. So, you know, once again, once again, it's domestic American politics in, in the forefront. Most certainly is, and it has a big impact on the oil price. And we headed for another yes. fifty cents a liter petrol price increase unless we get a, a, a really rapid pullback in the value of the rand quickly. Yes, but look, Bruce. I mean, this seventy-four, seventy-five, seventy-six dollars on Brent. I mean, obviously there is an element of of the Iran deal and President Trump and politics in it. But understand, there's a lot of American shale gas oil coming onto the market over the next, let's say, six months or so. So I think the oil price could pull back. Maybe it goes below 70. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But there's a lot of new supply coming on stream, specifically from America, over the next couple of months. So hopefully it heads more towards 70 than towards 80. We well, certainly hope so. MTN was also uh, felt a bit of the fallout out of Iran. It's got a big business in Iran yes. sell um, in that part of the world, down about 3%. Market looking for clarity. Yeah, we've got to wait on that one. I mean, obviously, MTN actually came up with some quite good news on their Nigerian operation. But you know, the, the, I suppose that's one of the risks when you are operating in uh, developing countries. There's a lot of politics and a lot of risk involved with it. And unfortunately for MTN, it's now Iran. Mm, that most certainly is the case. Um, there was a good set of results out of Anglo Gold Ashanti. Venkat uh, Ashunvas and Venkat Krishnan, the chief executive, leaving Anglo Gold Ashanti in, in very, very good shape, it would seem. Yeah, look, they've cut their all-in sustainable cost quite nicely. They're making a profit. They've only about, I think it's about 15 or 18% South African operations now. But yes, it was a very good result. They've maintained their gold production despite uh, selling off a good couple of assets. No, it was actually good, but the question is, do you want to buy a gold share? I mean, they are notoriously volatile, but at least Anglo Gold is profitable at this level. And they showed quite quite good cash flow, I think about $117 million positive cash flow. So it was a good result. Market didn't really react to the result, but nevertheless, it was good. And then Hyprop had a very busy morning. They issued some new shares by way of something called a book bill. They uh, therefore offered their biggest institutional shareholders some shares at a discount, and they got themselves 780 million rand. What might Hyprop want to do with 780 million rand? Look, there were no specifically uh, specific announcements made, but uh, they always just want to bring their debt down a little bit, and I think that the share price is uh, is is in a favourable at, at a favourable level in order for this for them to do this profitably. But interesting, talking about rights issues, uh, Sun International is doing a one for four rights issue to try and raise well over a billion dollar, a billion rand to try and get their debt down. So very different reasons for their issue is that they have to get their debt down. Uh, and their share price isn't as elevated as some others. I mean, so many companies use elevated share prices um, to raise money fairly cheaply because a uh, high share price, you, you issue new shares and you, and you raise a lot of capital that way for not many shares. If your share price is low, you have to issue far more shares, which dilutes your existing shareholders. I'm getting myself tongue-tied a lot more. No, you're quite right. So we've got a nice... Uh, uh, uh. A highly rated share is a wonderful currency that you can use as long as over time you reinvest those proceeds into businesses that generate at least the same return as your current assets. But it is a, it is a, a very, very favorable for, for businesses to have a highly rated share simply because it's cheap to issue equity.
Wayne McCurry, market commentator. He works for Ashburton Investments. He is on the line to us from Mpumalanga this evening. Wayne McCurry, thank you very much. Earlier in today's Fast Fact, I asked you, what did Chris Messina invent? Most of you getting it absolutely right. But my favorite response to this, because quite often you, you, if I ask you, if I give you an indication that there's something I don't like, then you bring what you really don't like to the fore. And Andre goes, Crocs, those unsightly plastic sandals. Andre? I wouldn't have been rude about Crocs. Crocs are very comfortable and practical and sensible shoes uh, for, for gentlemen and ladies of a certain age. So I won't have you dismissing Crocs, rude man. Uh, no, it's uh, Christmasina did not invent Crocs. I would like Christmasina had he invented those comfy shoes. Christmasina invented the hashtag on Twitter. That's why I don't like him. 2007, Christmasina had the idea of starting the use of hashtags on Twitter. It hashtag changed social media. Hashtag now used by millions. Hashtag the most annoying invention ever. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show on this uh, Tuesday evening. Andy Rice standing by with Heroes and Zeros. And he's got some fabulous ones for you this evening. He really does. Uh, well worth uh, standing by for on that one. On your next Money Show, Business Unusual correspondent Colin Cullis looking at the similarities between General Motors and Tesla. I'm looking forward to finding those similarities. Then join us also for the shapeshifter Bernard Bultemeyer, the founder of Jekyll and Hyde, the luxury leather goods manufacturer. Looking forward to those discussions and all the big money stories next time on The Money Show. 702 The Money Show. Bruce is on Twitter at Bruce Business. Fabulous story around today of a woman who worked as a legal secretary for decades after being born in the Great Depression. She's left an estate worth millions and she's giving all of it away. She quietly amassed about $9 million through decades of investments and she's donated most of it to needy students. Her name was Sylvia Bloom. She worked as a legal secretary to a high-powered New York lawyer and every time he made an investment decision which she as the secretary was obliged to act on on his behalf, she would mimic his investment with a smaller amount of money. She earned a lot less than he did. But through that process and through emulating his investment strategies, she built up her own $9 million nest egg. She lived frugally. She didn't spend the money. She didn't show it off. Nobody was aware of it until um, she died just recently, I think about 18 months ago. But now her, her papers as her, her estate are being wrapped up uh, are being made public. She worked until the age of 96, uh, did Sylvia Bloom. But now leaving all of that hard invested money to students who really need it. 702 and Cape Talk, The Money Show. Uh, Mohammed on the line to us this evening. Uh, you're on the N1 South. Tell me where you are and what you can see, Mohammed. N1 South, past Gordon Road, before Marysburg. Yes. Uh, the flyover bridge is a metro rail train on fire. A metro rail train on fire. How big is it? Does it look as if it's confined to a single coach or is it spreading throughout the train? I see that the whole coach across the highway is burning, so the people that are driving under the bridge might be very careful because there might be some stuff falling from the top. And uh, there is a fire brigade truck on the highway now going towards that area. Okay, so fire brigade is on the scene. Mohammed, thank you. Shivesh, can you add to that? You've seen the train as well? Oh, yeah. I actually passed it about 6.30, so it looked like it had just started. And uh, at that stage, it was the last coach of the train that was on fire and people had... Uh, been jumping out of it, and then it looked like it was actually really catching the light. 
But I guess Muhammad's actually passed it off to that. And as he says, there is probably fire brigade on scene. At the stage when I passed it, it was just uh, SAPS with one vehicle under the bridge, perhaps. Um, and uh, that was about it. But I'm assuming it's going to start backing up traffic now. Shivesh, thank you very much indeed. We'll alert traffic, alert eyewitness news to that one as well. 702, The Money Show. Call Bruce on 011-883-0702. With Standard Bank Deputy Chairman, the former Chief Executive of Standard Bank, who is also the Chairman of Liberty, Jacka Marie, one of the investment dream team who's been dispatched by President Sir Ramaphosa to find $100 billion in foreign direct investment over the next five years into South Africa. Jacka Marie on the line to us from Johannesburg this evening. You wouldn't agree to do something like this, Jacko, I don't think, unless you were pretty convinced you could pull it off. What gives you that confidence? Bruce, uh, good evening. Look, I think, you know, that there's been a massive change in sentiment towards our country externally. Uh, it really came was driven home to me when I was at Davos, the World Economic Forum, and I just saw the way in which people were clamoring to see our new president um, and and really, uh, you know, there's been a sea change. And and for the last eight or nine years, perhaps you know, there's been a bit of a drought. Uh, people have tended to wait and, and wait and uh, wait and see. So in that sense, I think there's sort of pent up interest and demand in South Africa. And of course, you know, I'm a patriotic South African. I believe fervently that uh, we can get this country to grow and be a better place. But it needs uh, investment. hundred billion dollars to to you and me may seem like an extraordinary amount of money. In investment terms, is it that extreme an expectation? No, of course it's a, of course it's a big number. Uh, if I put it in my own context, uh, when ICBC bought twenty percent of Standard Bank way back in two thousand and eight, uh, that was five billion dollars. Okay. Um, so you know you <laughs> kind of put these things into into context. Uh, uh, the world's moved on. But yes, it's, it's, a, it's an ambitious target, but uh, th- it's the sort of number we need. And uh, I, I think that over a five-year period with uh, the right policies in place and the right sentiment uh, towards emerging markets, which still is out there, and just judging by the, the, the string of emails and, uh, and the, the delegations that have been to our country. just Last week, there was a big Japan-Africa forum. Earlier in the week, there was a, an India Africa Forum, there's huge interest in, in South Africa. How do we translate that interest into into rand coming in, or to dollars coming in, into yen coming in, to renminbi coming into the country? Well, finally, everything comes down to deals and transactions, and of course that's a natural interest of mine, given my my background originally sure. as an investment banker. So, so yes, it, it is the practicalities, and I've seen experienced also, you know, investing into other countries in Africa and so on, seen it from 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 the investment sort of the investor point of view uh, we have to facilitate create you know un- unblock blockages there you know there've been numerous uh, you know things i've already heard about of you know people have been trying to do things and been struggling with visas and fairly straightforward things like that um so so hopefully we will have the ability also just to clear the way uh, where people already have an interest. I think it's different going to look for people who might invest. Uh, I think there's, there's quite a lot of people who've, who've got plans of some sort who ha- or plans in the making and we have to just 
um, turn those into into deals. Um, how much of a collaborative effort is it? Or you do you go off alone, um, uh, like a 007 or whatever the case might be, and, and go into the wilderness and, and look for the deals? Or do you, with Pumzile Langeni, who's the Afro Pulse chair, Trevor Manuel and Mtrivisi Jonas, do you do you collaborate and, and hunt in packs? How does it work? Well, it's all very it's all very fresh, and we're experimenting with different things. Um, I've had some meetings jointly, some on my own. I've been I went with uh, the president to the Commonwealth uh, uh, week in, in in the UK. Um, so I think I think we are at the moment uh, splitting up, but doing some things together. Um, but it, I think it will it will start coalescing over the next uh, over the next few weeks. And of course, you've got a, a number of high profile events uh, happening. You've got uh, the BRICS summit. That's happening in South Africa in, in a few months' time. You've got FOCAC, which is the Forum on Chinese Africa Investment, which is happening in Beijing, which, which as I understand, will be co-chaired by the President of China and and President Ramaphosa. So there are some of these signature events that will obviously coalesce around um, because they naturally will attract uh, people who have a strong business interests. How, how big an issue are the issues of policy certainty? Policy certainty on land, policy certainty on mining, for example. Both um, pivotal issues internally, both at critical development stages. Externally, how are they seen? I think people are are fairly pragmatic. Uh, I think there's an assumption that on, on both the matters that you raise, the mining charter and on on the land question, that some sort of pragmatic solutions uh, will will be found um clearly uh you know um as, as, as investors in emerging markets uh you would find most big companies who who do invest in emerging markets are used to some degree of of uncertainty but before they pull the trigger they would probably want to have reasonable assurances that that they're going to be practical and workable solutions and i, I, I you know i'm hopeful that that will be the case. You're by nature an optimist. I mean, you, you've worked um, you worked through the financial crisis, of course, leading Standard Bank as chief executive. Got to be an optimist to be able to do that when everyone around you is losing confidence. How close did you come to, to losing faith that South Africa would have a, a, a workable future? Many South Africans did give up hope. I've always been an optimist, but, but having said that, I think in the last few years, uh, it, 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 these were difficult times. If you were traveling the world and talking to people about our country, it, it was hard to defend some of the, the actions that, that, that were there for all to see. Um, but I think we have really got a, I call it a second chance to, to make a huge difference under the current leadership in our country. And if we can turn the, the, you know, the political transformation uh, into a virtuous circle, promote investment, which will promote growth, which will create demand, um, you know, that will, will, at the end of the day, produce the jobs and enable us, hopefully, to you know, develop an inclusive economy um, and, 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 and transform the economy, which, which, which needs to happen. Jacques-Marie, thank you. So, uh, part of Cyril Ramaphosa's dream team, uh, the, investor, the investment dream team, the envoys. Uh, so alongside Jacques-Marie, you've got Tlisi Jonas, former Deputy Minister of Finance, who uh, yesterday joined the board of MTN. You've got Trevor Manuel, who chairs Old Mutual South Africa, former Finance Minister, of course. And the Afro Pulse Chair, Pumzile Langeni, who you probably don't know that much about. On the 30th of May, though, she will be in studio. She happens, as we found out the other day, to be the chair of this company, the company that 
that runs this radio station, Prime Media Broadcasting. Uh, it's it's uh, owned by Prime Media, and uh, Pumzila is the chair of Prime Media. So she is also part of that uh, investment dream team, the Afropulse chair, Pumzile Langeni, as our shapeshifter on the 30th of May. Nobody should accuse us of not planning. 702 The Money Show. Call Bruce on 011-883-0702. So I asked the question earlier, just how many piggies are getting to market? And it's a serious point. It may go to the childhood nursery rhyme, but with the Listeria crisis in South Africa, um, you would have noticed that uh, the, sort of the processed meat products in Woolworths, for example, just aren't there on the shelves anymore. Vessel Lemmer, Senior Agricultural Economist at APSA, on the line to us this evening. Um, are we seeing any normalization, Vessel, in the pork industry? Yes, good morning. Uh, good good evening, morning Bruce. to you, Vessel. Good morning. <laughs> you get to work uh, early at APSA. Yeah, Bruce, yeah, no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's very interesting. We already saw recovery in prices and um, slaughtering numbers as well. So that's very um, positive for us, for, far, for farmers especially. Um, I think there's one critical aspect that we don't know that we detect in our analysis. And uh, when we look at the, the uh, reports of the Department of Health, and that is very interesting, where this listeriosis outbreak has been about 40 cases per week at its highest, highest level. Um, but we are back to normal levels since the fourth March of uh, when the product was recalled. So we are at levels, uh, pre, pre-outbreak levels, maybe pre-27 to about 60, 80 cases, which is about one less than two cases per week. That's where we usually should be at normal listeriosis uh, levels. And uh, that's very positive. And I think um, looking at that statistics, the Department of Health still needs to confirm that now they will make it publicly known to consumers. That actually tells me that we are back at normal levels and um, we can actually start. And we, we see we saw that also in the prices. We see prices is going to recover. Um, prices are for Paloni, for instance, is about 45% down since January um, and even is about 30% more down. So there's huge bargains for consumers out there to... Uh, to buy pork, pork products. But we know listeriosis is not only um, limited to pork. It's, uh, if you look at the U.S. and Australia, recently you have outbreaks of listeriosis on lettuce and no, absolutely. I mean, listeria can 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 live within lettuce, and they can live within um, sort of melons as well. What we call spun speck. Um, there's been an outbreak yeah. in Australia there as well. The lower pork prices that we've seen, though, suddenly it changes the dynamics in the food market quite substantially. Surely, suddenly, um, be, the, the beef sector is going to have to look at its pricing. The lamb sector is going to have to look at its pricing if if pork comes back with a vengeance. No, but you must remember one thing. We have uh, we have this drought in 2016. We have depleted red stock levels. Uh, our red is not recovering. We even saw the feedlots reporting that farmers at the, at the stage still um, sent we uh, harvest to to the feedlots about 30 percent, while that level must be 10 percent. So the recovery of our herd in South Africa will be a long time to go in future, a year or two. And we also see the last two years record levels of imports of uh, beef uh, cattle actually to uh, to South Africa uh, to meet the demand of the feedlots. And that is actually um, what we see that the wiener calf price is coming down now at the se- uh, at wiener season, but it will actually pick up again. Okay. But the beef carcass prices, I don't expect that to, to decline. 
even because of uh, lower pork prices, because we simply don't have enough beef in South Africa. You will you will notice when you go to dinner that you pay in a restaurant for beef at the moment. I haven't been for ages because of the beef prices. Vessel Lemmer, thank you very much indeed. Senior agricultural economist at APSA uh, taking us through the list here. It's interesting, the pig sector, pork sector is showing signs of recovery. Prices and slaughtering numbers recovering as well as the Listeria outbreak seems to be firmly under control. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. There's Andy Rice. Good. He's in place then at 20 past uh, seven this evening. Kathy Davey, who's a portfolio manager at Ashburton with her Africa business focus. The question is, is now the time? Is now the time to invest in Zimbabwe? Um, Zimbabwe making a showing at the tourism in Durban, Durban, which is good news because um, with Zimbabwe, if they get tourism off the ground once again, it's incredibly good for our region. And then Professor Ruth Hall, researcher at the Institute for Poverty, Land and Agrarian Studies, past seven this evening from PLAS um, talking about land reform, critical issues on tonight's Money Show, which is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. Well, Andy Rice on the line to us uh, from Johannesburg this evening, the branding and advertising expert. Sir Martin Sorrell, the guy who built up the world's biggest advertising agency, then seems to have been booted out after 33 years is starting all over again. How prosaic, Andy Rice? Yeah, it's a bit rich coming from um, from Martin Sorrell, given his track record. I mean, successful though it is, it's not one that was known for innovation or for disruption. And now he's saying he's going to go and, and start again with a new agency model. Um, I wonder what that might be. I, I, I attend a number of of advertising conferences, um, uh, both in South Africa and elsewhere, and you can bet your bottom dollar that on the agenda uh, for each one of them will be something about the new agency model of the future. The, the only problem is that when you go to that same conference the following year, on the agenda is the new agency model of the future, and nothing is <laughs> other than a bit of chat in between. And, and Martin Sorrell is as guilty as anyone in doing that, because he spent 33 years buying up agencies that looked a lot like the ones he'd already got. And he built a hugely successful empire, but it was not a model built around client centricity. It was about um, uh, sorrel centricity, if you like. It was about making sure that uh, operational costs were minimized through, uh, through scale rather than encouraging unfettered creativity, which is what clients are looking for. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. He says that model will be more agile, more responsive, less layered, less bureaucratic, less heavy than traditional advertising companies. He invented the traditional advertising company. He perfected it. I mean, he... <laughs> He did brilliantly, and, and if, if your only measure is is until recently, in his case, um, you know, shareholder returns or or uh, uh, just scale, then you can't argue with what he achieved. But what has happened is that he's suddenly woken up to the fact that the really big players now are people like um, Accenture Interactive. Uh, it was a, a release this this week as they acquired the um, uh, one of the big hotel groups um, as a client, um, uh, Radisson. Um, They've just passed the 25,000 global employees mark. Now, that's no longer a small fringe agency offering a bit of digital expertise. That is a major player of the future. And while I have some concerns about what it means for creativity, there's no doubt that 
uh, agencies that don't respond to the threat coming from uh, management consultancies and particularly the in- interactive digital divisions of them are going to find themselves out in the cold. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk about some uh, heroes and zeros, if you would. Bank advertising can be very good. It can also be very bad. I want you to take me down memory lane, please, to one of your favourites. Yes, I'm going to because um, they're still doing great work, in my view. I'm, I want you to to listen to the soundtrack of a television commercial that was really well known at the time. It's probably about six or seven years old, maybe even a bit more than that, and it features two young men being interviewed by um, a bank, and they are simply asked to uh, say what comes into their heads when they talk about the number seven. So there's Brian, there's Kevin, both given the same brief. Listen to how it goes. Brian, your topic for the next 20 seconds is seven. Seven. It's a prime number. Square root of 49. The cube root of 343. The 19th multiple of seven is 133. And the sum of its digits is your seven. The circumference of a circle is 22. Its diameter is approximately seven. And 544,439 divided by seven. 77,777. Kevin, your topic for the next 20 seconds is seven. Seven. There's a magnificent seven. The seven deadly sins. Um, seven, seven petals on a daisy mean she loves me. I believe six is really scared of seven because uh, seven, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> seven, um, and seven. Uh, it's also the square root of 49. And uh, that's $294 less than today's gold price. <clears throat> Rand Merchant Bank. Smug blighter. Well, and, and what you can't uh, get from the soundtrack is a simple title that comes up at, at the end of Kevin's slightly eccentric um, musing about the number seven, which just says, we hired Kevin and a big accountancy firm hired Brian, the first guy. So um, a very clever, elegant and uh, successful way to promote the fact that what RMB believed they stood for was a different way of thinking about about clients' problems. And that, as I say, was probably the better part of a decade ago. And yet today, RMB continues to come up with, I think, um, intelligent, witty advertising like that, but which continues to position RMB as a... Um, a, a, a bank that thinks differently. So it's so it's so critical. Sorry to interrupt you there, Andy, but it's so critical if you are going to try and attract different talent into your organisation that you do position yourselves differently, and that requires quite a lot of courage when it comes to you know you want to present as the serious and responsible and trustworthy bank, but at the same time being just a little bit cheeky about it. Well, exactly. And if you if you could hear clearly what Kevin was saying with all his songs and his his uh, eccentric uh, comments about number seven, his final offering referred back to today's gold price. So he was cleverly anchoring it back in, in some substance. But if I said to you, Bruce, um, complete the following phrase, great minds. Think alike is well where, where you want me to go, but that's not where, where you wanted me to go there so you could humiliate me somehow. Yeah. No, oh, would I, Bruce? Now, come on. No, but it, the point is that the, the latest R&B print advertising that appears in the, uh, in the business press, I, I, Sunday Times, Business Times and Business Day, um, plays on those kind of expectations and those, those predictabilities because their headline says, Great Minds Like a Think, 
which I think is a very, very clever way of making the point that they shouldn't think alike. Um, great minds should like to think because the way that they think and the thinking that they do leads them to solutions that others might not have known about. And they have another one uh, I saw in today's Business Day, um, perhaps not quite as strong a headline, but the same, same strategy. Um, they're saying that they're, they're always after thought, but never an afterthought. So again, a clever play on words that makes the point that they think before they, uh, before they get too hasty in their actions. Um, and yeah, it's a nice brand positioning. It's an evolution of a brand that has liked to position itself differently and continues to do so. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a uh, it's an important time for for a brand merchant bank over the last uh, uh, few weeks with the um, eventual um, retirement of the three founders who've uh, now handed over the reins fully to their to their successors. And I think they've done it in a way that that maintains the integrity of the brand. I think people will, will take up the, the reins and run in the same direction. Now, that's your hero, RMB's print campaign. Clever words, plays on words using the term thinking. Um, your, your zero is going to be very popular, uh, I, I suspect. Well, I almost had a, a coronary attack on Sunday when I opened up the Sunday Times, and there was a huge headline and, um, uh, in, in an ad that said, it's Mother's Day. And I thought, God, blimey, now I'm in trouble. Uh, I completely missed that. Um, and there was this headline saying, it's Mother's Day, enough said. <laughs> well, to be honest, it's not enough said because it's not Mother's Day. Uh, Mother's Day is um, this, this Sunday down the road. And that, this bewildered me because I thought this must be a clever trick somewhere. There's another ad in the newspaper that answers the question that you're asking, like, don't they know when Mother's Day is? Well, I couldn't find it. So unless someone uh, more skilled than me can point out the logic behind that, um, one full week before Mother's Day, running an ad in the paper that says it's Mother's Day, when they could easily say it's almost Mother's Day, if that's what they wanted to convey. But it left me thinking they don't know what they're talking about. And it also made me think that that famous telecom slogan of many years, touch tomorrow, <laughs> I think they must have stopped it because now they can say touch, touch next, next week. <laughs> Maybe, Andy, maybe um, next week's campaign, this next week you're going to get an ad saying broadband so fast you get the news before it happens or something. <laughs> well, I'll, I'm not sure I will doff my cap to them if they do that because I think that, that's a bit too obscure. But I, I, I really was determined to find somewhere in the newspaper the explanation of why something as blatantly uh, stupid as that, something as so easily rectified, should have sneaked through all the, all the checks and balances of the approval system. You've, you've been told off, Telcom. Andy, Andy Rice, hello? Hello, Andy. Oh, I'm Andy. still here, Bruce. Oh, you're still there? Oh, to check you. I thought you might be cut off. Um, Andy Rice, branding and advertising expert, on the line to us uh, from Johannesburg. Yep, the hero, the R&B print campaign, f following the very successful brand positioning of the last decade. Um, great minds like a think, rather than great minds think alike. So hats off to R&B on that one. Um, yeah, keep your hat on, Telcom. Uh, it's Mother's Day. It wasn't, and uh, they were way ahead, so far ahead of the curve with Telcom that Andy nearly had a heart attack. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. It's really good to see Zimbabwe making a strong showing at the tourism in Daba in Durban. The downtown, the downturn in tourism to Zim uh, over the last 20 years or so has been appalling for our region from a tourism perspective. We'll talk about investing in Zimbabwe in just a moment. Should you be investing there? I know people who've uh, given up everything and have gone to try and have come back and have gone back again um, just in terms of different timings. And it's uh, it's been a very tough space to make uh, a 
re-entry, but politics have changed. We can know how quickly sentiment can turn by our own experience here in South Africa. Kathy Davey is a portfolio manager at Ashburton Investments and joins us on the line from Johannesburg. Are you seeing progress in the investability, Kathy, of Zimbabwe? Um, well, yes, I think certainly um, Emerson Nangwagwa, the uh, new interim president, seems far more investor-friendly. I mean, he's, he's done quite a lot in terms of trying to invest, uh, attract new international investment into the market. So, I mean, for instance, he's scrapped the indigenization policy of 51% local ownership. Um, and this is for companies across sectors, except for the diamond and platinum sector. He's also changed what it actually means to be Zimbabwean um, from indigenous from an indigenous Zimbabwean to a citizen of Zimbabwe, and um, and also he's uh, the Reserve Bank has created the Zimbabwean Portfolio Investment Fund, which is aimed at facilitating repatriation of funds of securities to encourage new investments into the market. However, the country is still plagued by massive uh, uh, currency shortages. And really, this is still severely hindering the economy and the operational capability of companies. So it's very difficult to attract new capital when these investors don't know whether they will be able to get their money out of the country. That's the big issue, too. And also, um, there's a great deal of uncertainty as to what the next elections are going to bring in terms of uh, what the electoral outcome will be in Zimbabwe on the cusp of a a transformed society. And although the first steps are are encouraging from an investor's perspective, just how much reliance can be placed on the politics? Well, look, I mean, I think it's uh, Emerson Nguagwa has a big task at hand. I mean, as you could probably uh, compare it very much to Cyril Ramaphosa and the ANC. Um, look, I do think he, he probably will win the elections in, in July. But, of course, there's still a lot of infighting within ZANU-PF. There's still a lot of Mugabe allies there. And I don't think, you know, as much as he wants to change things, it's not going to be so easy. It's not easy, but he's made some fairly stellar progress so far. There's there's changes to local ownership rules and what constitutes being a Zimbabwean, absolutely critical. There's even the talk of a Zimbabwe portfolio investment fund. Yes, so, okay, what's interesting about this fund is it's, you know, it's very proactive that they've come up with this fund and it's fantastic, but then again it goes back to currency shortages because they actually don't have enough money at the moment to fund that um, that portfolio. So what it's basically, um, it's basically come about so that investors will come into the market um, with their dollars and their dollars will be kept for when they want to repatriate their funds out, which is a great idea, but you actually need dollars within that fund. So investors still sitting in Zimbabwe and wanting, wanting to exit cannot exit because the funds just aren't there. Yeah, um, and yeah, the lack of money and the currency shortages are a very key constraint. Uh, and I mean, for any investor, your ability to go in with as little bureaucracy as possible uh, to make your investments and then to either extract your returns or on a day that suits you to exit your investment altogether. And if there's no guarantee that you can do that, well, you're not going to go in in the first place. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's what's making it... Um, very difficult to attract investments. I think there was definitely a line of thought that, well, as soon as the Mugabe regime changed and the political environment looked better and the economic environment certainly looks like it's on a better trajectory, but the problem is is that people are still aware of taking their money in. And so really, 
you know, for me, I just think the currency issue is, is so important. It needs to be sorted out. And it's not easy because if we look towards Nigeria and Egypt, they also recently had um, currency issues, but they had their own currency. So they were able to devalue the currencies to a point that attracted international investors. But of course, Zimbabwe can't do that because they don't have their own currency. Uh, I was on a panel in Joburg last year where a Cape Town-based investor was speaking about a wall of money preparing to flood Zimbabwe if a turnaround materializes. Is there any sign that the turnaround that we've seen is sufficient enough to unleash that wall of money if that wall of money even exists? So I certainly think there are a lot of investors waiting on the sideline and wanting to come in and wanting to invest in companies. But again, as I say, it comes down to the fact that they need to sort the currency out first. And that's very, very difficult um, unless they, they maybe look at introducing their own currency. But then again, that introduces a whole, pro- a whole lot of problems in itself. They probably are not economically stable enough to do that. So really what they need to do is get money in through, um, through perhaps increasing exports. Um, you know, the economy was so badly managed under Mugabe that they really need um, to do a lot to get that money back in. Yeah, I mean, and it's good for our region, and this is also absolutely pivotal in terms of if Zimbabwe is doing well, the odds of us doing well improve dramatically as well. It's about regional health, not just country health. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, and so how, how do we as South Africa then support the Zimbabwean turnaround? Because it is a question, uh, you know, we, you know uh, it's a question of our own success in as much as, as it is theirs. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I guess that's difficult in itself. I mean, we can certainly help with, um, you know, ensuring that there are free and fair elections and, and that goes through. And, and I mean, one thing, I think a lot of investors are also waiting for uh, election that turns out to, to be um, reputable, you know, that people actually believe that there's no cheating and actually Emerson is the, is the proper new president and it's, it's who the people want. I think that certainly will have a lot of positivity. And I think I think we could, you know, as a country, I think South Africa could definite, definitely support that. Kathy Davey, thank you. Portfolio Manager at Ashburton Investments. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. The Money Show. The science of. One of the many issues that were discussed in Parliament today, in addition to the issue of the minimum wage, which had John Steenhuisen barracking the president, the president turning to John Steenhuisen and telling him to shut up. It was a sideshow to fundamentally more serious issues in South Africa from a position of fairness, from a position of sustainability, from a position of making everybody in the country feel like they've got some kind of stake in the future. And the 1913 Land Act removed the right for. 90% of South Africans to exist in their own country with any level of decency and dignity. And it's an issue that has come to the fore once again. I was listening um, to a fabulous podcast. It must be 15 years old with Hugh Masakela um, uh, talking land 15 years ago on the BBC and just mentioned the land. He sounded like he was a contemporary um, EFF, uh, EFF uh, member. But the, these issues have been bubbling below the surface and have now finally come to to the surface 
in a very big and important way. And it's an opportunity for South Africa to tackle the land issue um, once and for all. Or is it? No, it's more complicated than that. You can't simply tackle land once and for all. But certainly you've got to begin the journey. Professor Ruth Hall is a researcher at the Institute for Poverty, Land and Agrarian Studies at PLAS. Um, that is the short name for it at the University of the Western Cape. It's a dumb and stupid question, but I really need to ask it broadly. What is land reform? I mean, because everybody who talks about the subject seems to have a fundamentally different view as to what it is. So what is it actually? Such a great question. Uh, and I would say that there are actually two dimensions to land reform. If we look across the world, across history, there are two issues that have to be addressed. And the one is redistribution of land. And the other is securing and upgrading the rights of people who have insecure rights to land. And what I would say, especially as a sort of source of inspiration for South Africans, is that land reform can work. It's worked very well. Uh, If we look at the East Asian examples, if we look at um, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, a lot of these East Asian countries, what became known as the Asian Tigers, a lot of their growth was built on the basis on the fa- uh, of redistributing land from la- big landlords to tenants and allowing a more broad-based growth path. So I think that um, land reform is, is a lens through which we can look at um, uh, a way of overcoming spatial apartheid in both cities and countryside. I think that South Africans have been talking about land reform as if it's only a a rural issue. And it's like everybody wants to be a farmer. And then lots of people are saying we don't want to be farmers. Actually, 60% of South Africa is urbanized. The big demand for land is actually for well-located urban plots as well as well-located rural plots. And so I think we should be debating these questions a little bit more broadly and saying, who wants the land? And what, well, well, what is the land? I mean, not even what's land of form. What is the land? What constitutes this, this, this massively broad concept of the land? The land could be a 50 square meter flat um, on, on the 15th floor of a well-managed block that gives you access to your place of work. That could be your land, for yeah. want of a better word. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, when we deal with land reform, we have to deal with the fact that we're dealing with two, in a sense, separate issues. The one is that people have a historical claim to the land. South Africa and our entire economy, our entire society, is based on land dispossession. Um, You know, whether you are a descendant of an 1820 settler or whatever, you have, you know... As a white South African, you've been a beneficiary of land dispossession. As a black South African, you have been affected by some form of dispossession. And often dispossession happens in multiple ways. So I think that um, we need to clarify the history and then engage in a very honest debate about how do we want to go forward. My own view, and I want to get to what I suspect is your next question, which is about the Constitution. Yeah, it's on the list. So the the Constitution, is the Constitution the problem, you know? Uh, Many many would argue the Constitution is most certainly not the problem. The, The Constitution makes provision for multiple levels of land redistribution. 
even land distribution without mm. compensation. It is there, which leads you to suggest that there have been political failings in the last 20 or 20, 25 years in land restitution. There have been lots of experiments which have failed. There have been lots of schemes which have been failed, which have failed. There have been lots of um, issues where there's been wide scale corruption, where, where farmers have been left on the land. You mentioned the 1820 settlers. There's almost a, <laughs> an historical uh, resemblance there where people got dumped on land and, and left to fend for themselves and set up for failure almost. Well, my view, um, Bruce, is that actually uh, we are at a we're at a critical turning point, and it could be very productive. Could be. Um, my view is that the Constitution has never been uh, an impediment to land reform. The Constitution, and I would encourage anyone who's interested in this to actually look up the Constitution, look up Section 25, read it, and see that in many respects what it provides is a mandate for transformation. It actually provides positive obligations on the state to embark on land reform. It says you must redistribute land. So why it, has it not happened? Okay. Well, uh, my view is that um, the ruling party has never actually taken the land question very seriously. That's a it, huge statement to it's make. It's a huge statement to make, but I'm willing to make it. Uh, it's never taken the land issue seriously. The ANC fought uh, the liberation struggle largely in exile and also in alliance with uh, urban movements. And there hasn't been a strong rural movement. Where's the rural movement? Where's the push from below of people demanding the land? My view is that um, there is the potential to get this right. Every, for, every, for every criticism that anyone can lay against land reform. Uh, it's been too slow. Uh, the wrong people have got the land. It's been, uh, there's been elite capture. There hasn't been enough support for farmers when they got the land. Uh, we haven't really transformed the rural areas, etc. All of these are solvable problems. Mm. These are problems that can be solved. They can be solved, and there are clear proposals for how they can be solved. And to be specific... I would like to mention that the Motlante panel, the high-level panel appointed by Parliament last year, which reported in November 2017, actually laid out a very comprehensive analysis of what are the problems and what should be done. And what it clearly said is that the Constitution is not the problem. The problems have been a failure of political leadership a failure to allocate funds, a failure of institutions, corruption and mismanagement. Mm -hmm. So these are all problems that can be solved. And my view is that they, they can and must be solved. And perhaps, perhaps now that we're at this moment where we're debating the Constitution, people are energized around the land issue, perhaps we can use this moment to... Uh, put forward a new vision of what land reform could be as an opportunity. Uh, absolutely. I mean, an opportunity to transform a dysfunctional society, a society that needs um, people to have a stake in the future. Whatever you think about Margaret Thatcher, her uh, decision to allow people to buy council houses in the United Kingdom was a stroke of genius in that suddenly once you have an asset, 
you will fight to protect that asset. You become almost naturally more conservative in your worldview and politics because suddenly you are now an owner of some space, whatever that space might be. Um, the ANC, you argue, has been an impediment to land reform through just a lack of political will. And that raises the issue of the opportunism of other political parties. Um, the EFF in particular has come um, with this because it's found the stick with which to beat the ANC. The ANC is now forced to respond. Brings um, uh, the, the EFF brings a motion to Parliament talking about land reform and immediately the ANC is going along with the EFF's drum and suddenly the politics of land is really what it seems to be all about rather than this deep desire to transform the country and society. Well, yes, of course. And a year ago, the ANC voted against a motion in Parliament to amend the Constitution. So the EFF proposed a motion and offered its 6% vote to the ANC um, uh, in March 2017, and the ANC voted against it. Uh, Now we've seen in February 2018, the ANC has agreed with with the EFF. My view is that actually they're not agreed. And so we should not, there's a false image that there is an agreement on this issue. Explain why there, in your view there is no agreement and what the the sticking points are. Well, I think that on the one hand, the EFF vision of land redistribution and reform is one of nationalization of land Mm -hmm. and uh, state ownership and custodianship of land. The idea is that the state should own all land. The ANC, the ANC view of land of, of land reform is that the state should have a variety of mechanisms at its disposal. It should be able to buy on the open market. It should, it should be able to negotiate hard. It should be able to expropriate where needed. It should be able to expropriate and pay market-related compensation, for instance, for somebody who who bought the land last year, whereas it should actually drive down the price and um, provide no compensation for certain categories of of owners. So the ANC is wanting to see this as um, a mechanism at its disposal to be used widely. But the ANC has not yet declared itself on its policy position. Well, the ANC ANC can't have a policy position because the ANC is so massively divided on these issues. I agree. And my view is that what we should probably, and I'm going to be quite provocative here. 011-883-0702-021-446-0567 if you would like to respond to the provocation or if you would like to provoke uh, the further views of Professor Ruth Hall, who is a researcher at PLAS, the Institute for Poverty, Land and Agrarian Studies at the University of the Western Cape. Provoke away. Great. Thank you, uh, Bruce. So my view is that Expropriation of land is actually essential in our society. We need to have a mechanism to break a deadlock where there's a distinction between private owners of land and a public interest. For instance, people who are claiming back their land. Why should the owner of that land currently have a veto power over that? We need to have a mechanism of breaking deadlock. So expropriation is crucial. And in fact, our state expropriates regularly for public purposes, for uh, roads or dams or public infrastructure. But we need, to, we need to be clear about how we're going to approach 
in, uh, expropriation for land reform purposes. Now, see, and then, yeah, and the issue of expropriation is one thing, but the moment you add in without compensation, because you could be somebody who bought a piece of land five years ago um, with money earned at the casino, um, or whatever it might be, um, through no sort of ill-gotten gains of the past, you buy yourself a piece of land, which mm. the state then comes and says... Mm. Actually, we would like that piece of land to, to give it away to this group of people or to build a road or whatever the case might be. If there is no compensation, that's fundamentally unfair. What I would say is, to anyone who's interested in this, look at Section 25 of the Constitution. Section 25.3 sets out five criteria mm-hmm. for how we should uh, adjudicate just and equitable compensation. Can you summarize those very yes. briefly? Those five criteria are the history of how the property was acquired, the history of past support and investment, for instance, subsidies in the acquisition or, and development of that property, the current market value, the current use, and the purpose of the expropriation. And here's the interesting thing. The ANC in the 1990s fought hard for this provision that said we are going to have a transformatory property clause. And yet it has never chosen to pursue this route of expropriation uh, and to test uh, the compensation formula. And the result is the Constitutional Court has never ruled, has never ruled on expropriation without compensation or with compensation. It's never actually interpreted these criteria in the in the Constitution. So I think that what we're, we're sitting in a situation where the ANC is, is arguing that it's promoting more radical v- vision of land reform. It's never used its existing powers. Uh, and I think that the key issue now is to say, okay, let's have a proper policy framework where the state will say, how are we going to approach expropriation without compensation? I can think of three situations where the state should expropriate with no compensation. And that would be? Those would be inner city, inner city Johannesburg. Um, but, but the, the, the slum lords or people who have abandoned buildings. I mean, they had that dreadful incident the other day where kids were killed when a building crumbled onto the street. Just the building had been neglected for far too long. And, exactly. And, and, and you have these sorts of slums. You should you absolutely agree. So why there's an overwhelming public interest in acquiring these properties and making them social housing. Uh, secondly, um, social housing uh, in the informal settlements around the cities. There's an overwhelming argument for public acquisition of this land. Uh, there, are, there are cases where private landlords have actually allowed people to occupy land. There are informal settlements. Why should the state pay for this? Uh, there are situations in rural areas where uh, private landlords have allowed people to live on land for generations and have in fact in, uh, acquired private uh, uh, unpaid la- uh, labor from them and they should they should become the owners of that mm. land so there are probably a few cases my view and i think that this is this might be in, of interest to listeners my view is that we're, what we're probably going to see in the next 12 months ahead of elections next year, is we're going to see a few test cases. Let's see a few inner-city test cases. Let's see a few informal settlement test cases. Let's see a few rural test cases. But the key issue is that I would say um, 
the ANC has woken up to the land issue. The ANC fact, never it, took this seriously. It was fast asleep and then was awoken to the land issue. It didn't wake up. It was awoken to the land it issue. It was it was forced to wake yeah. up to the land issue. And I think that what we're going to see in the in in the next twelve months is a series of test cases. We're going to see a lot of contestation in the courts. Um, we, we'll we'll see. Mm. Um, Karabo in Northwest, uh, your point, please, to Professor Ruth Hall this evening. <coughs> Uh, good evening. My proposal uh, to what Professor has been saying or to add on is that we have a challenge of land tenure. Villages out there in the village only get permission to occupy. Why don't we speed up the process of tenuring those villages so that any person owning a stand in a house can have a title deed? Immediately by doing that, Bruce, you will create wealth because of those people can now use their properties. Yeah. And security. Completely. And currently, currently, we don't have a debt. I have a piece of, I have 100 hectares of land that I want to farm on. I fence it, but I cannot raise finance to get the borehole, to get the irrigation system because of that land, I don't mm-hmm. own it. And that is the challenge. That is why, that is the thing that prevents us to get properly into the economy. But at the, at the core of this also is the chiefs. The chiefs are benefiting from this trust land, trust board that were established a long time. Now, once you start transferring the land to individuals, the chiefs think that they will start losing the control on yeah. the land. That means that my farm, if there are minerals on it, then I will have to negotiate to whoever investor is coming there. And that's the core of the problem. If we can focus that and transform that, you will see, I mean, the dynamics, the, 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 the economics of scale, you will see that People will no longer focus on coming to cities. People will no longer focus on trains. Yeah, you have a, you have a, you have a stake. Absolutely, Karabo. Thank you so much for your call in Northwest. I mean, and this is what King Goodwill-Zunatini is pushing against so hard because he quite likes his position of authority. Thank you very much. And that uh, position of authority is very closely tied to the land. Well, I think that uh, what Karabo's point is very powerfully showing is that, you know, a minority of black people in South Africa have a stake in the land and they don't have secure tenure. And the reason for that is that we've had discri- discriminatory policies in the past. And, you know, a lot of wealth has actually migrated off the land. Yeah. You know, a lot of white privilege has moved from subsidized farming off into um you know, the JSE and pension funds and, what, what and residential the, what land. Was the, what and was so the number? There was, there was something like, I think I was in Nampo last year, and the number was something, there were 120,000 registered commercial farmers in South Africa in 1990, and now there's something like 35,000. It was something mad like that, where actually farmland has been consolidated amongst yeah. huge landowners. This is true. Um, over, over the last two and a half decades. This is true. Um, we're sitting at around 35,000 commercial farming units. Um, and those are the ones that are big enough to be mm. registered for VAT. So there might not, there might be more. Yeah, there might okay. be more. We there don't have good, good data on that. But I think Carabo's point is is very, very important because it brings together the question of like, well, it's not just about the redistribution of land, but how should people hold the land, and who should hold the land? Should it be chiefs? Should it be individuals? Should it be families? And I think that those are some of the key issues Completely. to be debated. Um, Howard and Lyndon raising something that often comes up when these discussions are held. Make the point, please, uh, Howard. Yes, thank you. It's a very interesting discussion. Uh, we just have to be careful we don't shoot the golden goose. 
Um, most properties in South Africa, most residential properties have a bond and most farms in South Africa have a land bank loan. Uh, oh, Howard, we, we're losing you, but I, I know the question. Um, and that is, there's what, 350 billion rand in debt to the banking sector, some public banks, some uh, state-owned banks, whether yeah. the land bank or, and or of others. Course, uh, of course, most of, the, most of the farmland debt is held by the big four banks. Yeah. Uh, the land bank is actually a relatively small holder Ironically of, enough, of farmland yes. <laughs> bank, farmland uh, debt right now. So I think that, yes, the banks are concerned. They're wanting to engage with this debate. Uh, I think that they're on the back foot. Uh, more generally, what I would suggest to you is that the land issue has exploded within South Africa and it, it strikes a chord because it means several things. It is about who owns the economy. Has there been redistribution? Has there been a dividend of liberation? And also symbolically, do we connect with our history? Yeah. You know, how do we connect with our history? And and I think that nobody has really been able to clarify and consolidate an argument of how we move forward. And my view is that uh, the ruling party is right now on the back foot. Yeah. It's working to try to develop a position. I think that the EFF has got as far as slogans, but no further. Um, and there's, there are no solutions in place, but political solutions. Anyway, quick one from you, Tsepo, before we go. A quick point, please, to Professor Ruth Hall. You want to disagree with her? Hi, Bruce. How are you? Good, Tsepo. Quick, a quick point, please, Tsepo. Yeah. No, no, my, my, my point is simple, is that I, I fundamentally disagree with the professor there because she cannot only speak about rural land and, and, and vis-a-vis RGP houses and allocations to black people. Here, when we talk about land, we talk about land in its entirety. Let me tell you a, a very quick example. When we talk about crime land, crime land is the one that was stolen or was taken from black people. And those that took it from black people gave the land value. And what happened is that when currently they want to buy another piece of land somewhere else, they have an asset that they can sell and buy sure. another one. Whereas when you talk about the middle class, the middle class has a difficulty of accessing those lands simply because the value has either been tripled or fumbled by our four banks, whom are, are owned by white people. So this is just a white privilege taking advantage of a vulnerable solution. I am not even talking about Malema here or ANC. Yeah, no, Tsepo, I mean, Ruth Hall needs an, opp- an opportunity to respond to you. Tsepo, thank you for a point well made. And I think you, you agree completely with Tsepo. You made the point earlier about this isn't just about rural land. Tsepo, you're, you're so right. And, of course, what, what you're pointing to is that wealth was created on the land and wealth has migrated off the land. And restoring the land to people doesn't necessarily mean restoring the wealth. The battle and, for land and, and isn't... And the, gener- and the generations, mm-hmm. the generations of loss that have yeah. happened, the generations of loss of land, of livestock, of social networks, the generations who were forced into um, migrant labor, the generations who, who couldn't educate their children. I mean, and so restoring the land in a way is a symbol of what we need to put right. But by itself, it's not going to put everything right. We need to think about... Doesn't even Restoring the land, but in a much wider spectrum. We're going to leave it there. I was hoping to get some answers this evening, but all Ruth Hall has done is provoke more questions. So we'll have to get you back. Ruth Hall is a professor. She's a researcher at the Institute for Poverty, Land and Agrarian Studies, plus at the University of the Western Cape. Thank you for your calls. And Ruth Hall, thank you so much for coming in. 
The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. That's it from The Money Show for this evening. Thank you very much for listening. Back again tomorrow. Till then, good night.